This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll be starting out with about 10 to 15 minutes of basic neuroanatomy, and hopefully some of the anatomy will prep you for our talk today by Dr. Doris Wang, actually an MD, PhD, and um, she'll be talking to us about essential tremor. To go over my presentation really quickly, again, we'll review some definitions. We're gonna actually try to cover three major parts of the brain today, the cerebellum, the basal ganglia, and the thalamus. And they're all, you know, very different structures and how they process information, but they contribute to a lot of the same functions, uh, motor function, and they're also connected with um, sensory processing and um, emotional processing too. Now I'll go over a few common neurologic diseases that affect these structures. You know, this again is our unit of the nervous system, the neuron, And today I also wanted to point out these projections here coming from the cell body are called dendrites. They uh, can look like these little tufts, um, but they can also be much more extensive. And um, they, the main function of dendrites is to receive information from other neurons. And then the signals are generated uh, within the cell body and then in the axon hillock there may be a action potential that's formed and then is transmitted down the axon. The central part of the cell is the nucleus, but we also call um, these other, we also call these other structures in the brain, which are groups of neurons that work together. They are also called a nucleus, and that's different from the nucleus within a neuron. So I think that's often confusing. So I just wanted to clarify that. First structure we have on the agenda today is cerebellum. It's known as a little brain. It's a pretty large structure. It is found kind of at the in the back behind the brain stem and is connected through peduncles to the brain stem. The primary function of the cerebellum is to help with maintaining posture and balance. It also helps um, maintain muscle tone and coordinate voluntary motor activity. It has this um, comparator function where it receives sensory information about the body and space from the muscles and joints and it can really help adjust the motor output. So the comparator function is where it um, gets both information from the motor cortex, which is the part of the cortex and the frontal lobe that controls movement. So it receives information from that cortex telling um, it that the person wants to move, and then it also receives all the sensory information from that movement. And then it compares the information, um, the intended movement that the body wants to do, that the motor cortex has laid out with what is actually done. And if 
a difference is detected, then it sends information back to motor cortex and also to the motor neurons to help adjust and make changes. This ensures that the movements we make are smooth, uh, that they're coordinated, the timing is just right, the range and the force is all uh, a very smooth process. It's not jerky. And therefore, as you can imagine, the cerebellum plays a critical role in learning of motor skills. So playing the piano or these complex coordinated tasks uh, that the cerebellum is very important to refine movements. It uh, also, in addition to receiving information from the motor cortex, it also receives the sensory information from the spinal cord and also the inner ear. And that also gives the uh, cerebellum information about where the body is in space. And cerebellum, I think, is one of the most um, kind of beautiful structures in the body. You know, this is not a human cerebellum, but uh, this is a mouse cerebellum, but I thought it was nice because it all fit into one picture. And you can really see the different layers. There's three major layers of the cerebellum. The outer layer, which is this purple layer, the molecular layer, um, it contains actually the dendritic tree, so the dendrites from these Purkinje neurons that are in the Purkinje cell layer, which is sort of a one cell layer here. And then uh, the axons of the Purkinje cells go down into the inner granular layer and relay information to the nuclei. Let's see, um, this is just a schematic. So the Purkinje cell neurons, uh, the output from the Purkinje neurons is what allows the cerebellum to communicate with the cortex and the spinal cord. And the information goes through these, the four classically goes through these four major nuclei, the dentate nucleus, the emboliform nucleus, globus nucleus, and the fistigial nucleus. Uh, this is kind of a sample circuit um, that I was telling you about. So the motor cortex you know, is, um, here's a neuron in the motor cortex. It's sending signals uh, through the cerebellum. They um, synapse onto Purkinje cells in the cerebellum. And then the Purkinje cells go to these nuclei within the middle of the cerebellum and then go out to different areas of the brainstem, the thalamus, go back to the, the sensory cortex and so forth. And then um, maybe just to get some terminology out there, so the dentate nucleus uh, goes to this red nucleus in the spinal cortex, and that is known as a dentato-rubral circuit that kind of goes down to the spinal cord. And then you also have um, the dentate going to the thalamus, and that's the dentothalamic fibers that go up to the cortex. Okay, uh, next up we have the basal ganglia. And this is a cluster of neurons or gray matter that's just um, two that kind of on the sides of the brain. They look like uh, 
they kind of wrap around the structure called the thalamus. The basal ganglia forms what we call the extrapyramidal system, which organizes also organizes and coordinates movements. And you know, like the cerebellum, it's involved in controlling motor function, but it's good to keep in mind that they sort of have opposite effects. So the major effect of basal ganglia is to decrease muscle tone and inhibit unwanted activity. So if you have a lesion in the basal ganglia, you may you have a little bit of rigidity and increased tone and then some tremor at rest, even when you're not wanting to move. Kind of a basic idea, although it's more complicated than that. And components of the basal ganglia include the caudate nucleus, the lentiform nucleus, which form the striatum. And the lentiform nucleus is formed by the globus pallidus and the putamen here. You can kind of see these bluish, purplish structures and the claustrum on the edge that forms the basal ganglia. Uh, even though the substantia nigra and subthalamus are technically within these structures, functionally they work together as a unit, so they're sort of um, known as part of the basal ganglia as well. This is sort of a circuit diagram of how the different structures in the basal ganglia communicate with each other to control motor function. It's pretty complicated, and I'm pretty sure PhD students have, have failed their graduate exams from this. But I think the main take-home points for this is that, the again, the cortex, so the motor cortex, um, and then also information from the thalamus is sent to the striatum. And the striatum communicates with these different structures. There's some feedback loops inside here. But then overall, um, the output of the basal ganglia really is through the thalamus. And then the thalamus um, sends a message back to the cortex, and then the cortex relays the movement signals to the brainstem and the spinal cord. Something that I helpful to keep in mind is that you know, there's really two major outputs from the basal ganglia into the thalamus. So if one pathway potentially is disrupted, um, we can kind of co-opt the other pathway and try to um, mod try to change things or modulate things to um, help boost motor function if one part of the pathway is down. Finally, I, I did want to just touch on the thalamus because it is a very important structure. It's almost like a mini brain. Uh, it's thought to be a very important. It relays all the sensory information from touch, vision, and um, vestibular input, so inner ear input. Um, they all have different nuclei within the thalamus. Um, so are coming in and the thalamus uh, receives information also from the basal ganglion, the cerebellum, and the limbic pathways and the brainstem. And the important thing about the thalamus is that it really has these reciprocal connections, so um, to and from the cortex. And so it's communicating in a, a two-way fashion and 
that also allows for um, increased depth and of signal and processing. So on to some, some diseases that affect these structures. So sometimes uh, people can have degeneration of the cerebellum and that can be extremely problematic that it can affect vision because eye movements are controlled is a motor movement that's controlled by the cerebellum. Uh, people, of course, have incoordination. They are unstable. They might even have trouble sitting down and uh, staying still. And walking is problematic because they have these herky-jerky movements that are irregular and they, they can't keep a normal rhythm. Speech and swallowing is also affected because that uses muscles and vocal cords and also the throat and the larynx. And people can have a lot of vertigo because the um, coordination of movements with the inner ear signals is disrupted. There can be many causes of cerebellar degeneration, including genetic inflammation, with the, some of these uh, autoantibodies that are produced in certain types of cancer, metabolic disturbances, so toxins, uh, for example, um, alcohol, prolonged alcohol use can cause significant atrophy of the cerebellum. Uh, vitamin deficiency or thiamine can cause degeneration of the cerebellum and certain medications as well. And, and you can see here on the left, how thinned out the cerebellum is in comparison to a normal cerebellum. Parkinson's disease we think of as a major disease of the basal ganglia. It is degeneration of these uh, cells that contain this black uh, pigment, substantia nigra. And uh, these are the main dopamine producing cells that uh, project to the striatum, so to the basal ganglia, and degenerate the lack of dopaminergic input to these areas, we believe, you know, contributes to a lot of the main cardinal symptoms of Parkinson's, which are a tremor at rest, typically slowed movements, rigidity, and uh, difficulty walking. It does fit, it does affect a sizable number of people in the US, usually older people, but there can be a large range in the age of onset for Parkinson's disease. Okay, and then the uh, last common condition we see that pertains to the thalamus is these hemorrhagic strokes, say from hypertension or high blood pressure. And um, this can cause bleeding actually not only in the thalamus, but we also see hypertensive hemorrhages affecting the cerebellum and the basal ganglia here. And here, this is an example. This is a CT scan. You see some blood in the left thalamus um, because this patient's blood pressure was not controlled. This led to right-sided weakness. Unfortunately, that led to a patient falling and you can see they have um, swelling here um, and a, a large bruise over the, over the scalp here. And in addition to hemorrhage, so bleeding from high blood pressure, 
The thalamus can also be injured by strokes caused by clots in the blood vessel. There can be lesions from multiple sclerosis. Uh, calcifications can form in the thalamus as well as uh, tumors and infections can sometimes also preferentially affect the thalamus. And oftentimes some of these conditions, they, you know, if they have a predilection for the thalamus, they may also have a predilection for the cerebellum and the basal ganglia too. That is, I hope that was helpful. Here are my references again. And uh, I am just beyond thrilled to introduce our last speaker for this series, Dr. Doris Wang. She's a neurosurgeon here at UCSF who specializes in treating patients with movement disorders like Parkinson's disease that we discussed, uh, essential tremor, dystonia. And she's a full product of UCSF. She completed her medical school, her PhD graduate studies here, and her residency. And fortunately, she stayed on her here and her lab is working on decoding the circuitry of different movement disorders uh, with the goal of using state-of-the-art technologies to restore disease circuits and allow for normal neurologic function. So thank you for speaking with us this evening and being our last speaker to um, finish out the series. Thank you so much, Maggie, for the kind introduction. Yes, I'm also a product of UCSF. You can stay here forever. So um, anyway, so it's such a pleasure to be talking to this audience today about something that's dear to my heart, which is a disease I see very often, uh, essential tremor. And as Maggie mentioned, I'm a functional neurosurgeon here. So, um, you know, she gave a beautiful introduction to this really complex set of disorders and the neuroanatomy and the structures involved. And that gives a great background to some of the circuit I will be talking about today. So here are my disclosures, none of which are relevant to today's discussion. So my overall goal today is to give you kind of a current overview of essential tremor, uh, from describing and defining the characteristics of the disease to discussing how we diagnose it, uh, to talking about briefly about what's known about the pathophysiology or what causes the disease and then really spend a lot of time talking about the treatment options. And I also want to introduce you to some of the really exciting not novel technologies available here at UCSF for the treatment of essential tremor. So essential tremor is a movement disorder characterized by these involuntary rhythmic shaking of the upper extremity, such as the arm or the hands. Uh, these tremor, can occur uh, during various um, things such as during movement. So when somebody's trying to move, trying to hold things, uh, the, the tremor starts getting worse. And we call these kinetic tremors. They can also occur during certain postures. Uh, so for instance, when people are holding their arms out against gravity, um, holding the arms in certain positions, that's what brings out the tremor. They can also occur during, um, or when there's goal-oriented movements. So when um, the amplitude of the tremor actually increases as you're uh, near a target. So we call these intention tremor. So these tremors can affect one or both arms. It can also actually affect other limbs of the body, such as the legs as well. 
And these tremors are generally very rhythmic in uh, quality, and they're pretty high frequency in terms of tremors are concerned. They're about you know, 8 to 12 hertz, that means 8 to 12 shakes per second. These tremors are not typically present at rest. However, um, in cases where patients have had, you know, really long-standing disease, patients can start to have tremors during rest. So besides, you know, involvement in just the hands and arms, essential tremor can also involve other parts of the body, including the head and jaw. So shown this video here is um, somebody, you know, even when she's not speaking, you can see her jaw tremoring. And she also has this kind of a horizontal uh, neck and head tremor. So the head tremor is typically a late clinical manifestation of the disease and the presence of isolated head tremors, so head tremor only without any hand involvement should raise suspicion for an alternative diagnosis. Um, instead of a central tremor, they may have something called cervical dystonia. So these head tremor can be defined as a no-no tremor. So like if you're shaking your head saying no-no, it's a horizontal tremor, or there can be a yes-yes tremor when you're nodding your head. And in most cases, it's um, mixed directionality. Um, unlike, you know, arm tremors, head tremor can occur during rest, and they can also have an intention component as well. So for instance, you know, um, when patients are trying to lower their heads to sip water out of a glass, their head tremor may actually get worse, just like what they do with their hands. So uh, the other part of the central tremor that can, um, uh, that can involve is, uh, evolve over time is um, vocal tremor. Um, I will play you a sample of what these tremor can sound like. So these vocal tremor are characterized as, you know, um, very shaky, unstable, uh, or weak. And um, these are um, picked up, can be picked up by these laryngoscopy. So this is a video where the ear, nose, throat doctors can actually um, send a scope down the nose. And we're looking at somebody's vocal cord. And you can see in this video, while the patient just actually breathing, you can see a lot of these muscles, you know, the, the palate, the larynx, pharynx, all trembling and shaking as demonstrated here. So, you know, in um, summary, uh, the characteristics of the central tremor are such that it is a um, movement disorder characterized by rhythmic involuntary movements of the upper extremities. It can involve um, actually any part of the body, including the head, the voice, or the lower limbs. And besides these motor components that people see and complain about, there may be actually um, non-motor symptoms that coexist with the disease. These can include mild cognitive changes. So sometimes people can be forgetful, um, you know, can uh, remember things as well. They can have a coexisting depression and anxiety. Um, and as you can imagine, it can be very socially isolating when people are shaking and um, the public is staring at them. So together, these motor and non-motor symptoms can really make activities of daily life really challenging for patients. It's very difficult to speak in front of the groups in the committees. Being a mother of three children, the essential tremor is becoming very, very difficult as far as preparing meals for my children, uh, putting on my daughter's makeup for her cheer competitions, pouring them a glass of milk 
I struggle with that every day on how I can try to hide from people not seeing me shake as much as I do today. I would love to cuddle with my children when I'm holding them close and not thinking, are they uncomfortable because of the shaking when we're cuddling? Okay, so that's a very powerful testimony for some patient, and you can see she's really young. Um, her tremor affects, you know, her head, neck, her voice as well, in, including her hands. So how common is essential tremor? So in fact, essential tremor is the most common movement disorder in the world. It affects about 1% to 2% of the population. And the incidence actually increases with age, with about 4 to 5% of the population over the age of 65 were diagnosed with essential tremor. It's estimated that, you know, at least 10 million Americans and over 40 million people worldwide are afflicted by ET. And in terms of age of onset, really just tremors can occur at any age. Uh, the average age of onset is around 40 to 50 years old. But there's a strong association with age as demonstrated by much higher prevalence of the disease in patients who are older. And um, the onset can actually be as early as childhood. And uh, in fact, you know, the age, peak age of onset has a bimodal distribution with the peak age of onset in the second and sixth decade of life. So the ET, uh, well, ET can manifest sporadically. Um, there is a strong familial component of the disease. So in, you know, over half the case, um, a lot of the times patients have these strong family history. So this all suggests that the disease has a genetic background. And in those cases with a familial component, uh, typically um, uh, the, the disease may show up earlier in life. So in terms of, you know, the natural progression of the disease, um, it is, eastern tremor is unfortunately a progressive condition. Uh, despite the fact that it is a progressive condition, actually less than 10% uh, with longstanding disease actually develop significant disability. And uh, patients um, with older age of onset may have a more rapid disease uh, course um, and those, you know, who end up getting the disease early on in life, such as pediatric patients, tend to have actually a similar, similar rate of disease progression as adults. And again, the disease progression, you know, usually starts with arm, usually one, one arm, then the symptoms may progress to other areas of the body involving head, um, jaw, voice, uh, as, well as, as well as the leg. And, but the rate of progression is generally slow. In one uh, study, they've shown in terms of the rate at which the tremor gets worse in someone's arm is only about 1.5 to 5% per year. So how do we diagnose essential tremor? So believe it or not, there is not a single blood test or imaging test we can do to make the diagnosis. It is a purely clinical diagnosis. So what that means is that the entire history um, of presentation of the disease and a physical examination are the sole components that's needed for diagnosis. So how do we actually get to the bottom of it if some patient shows up with, you know, their hand trembling? First, you know, we ask about location of the tremor. Where did the tremor start? Which arm, if both arms, and then what other body parts are involved? 
Then we ask about the characteristics of tremor. So are there any actions or things that make the tremor worse? Are the tremors present at rest? Or is it only present when eating, drinking, writing, or doing some other activity with our hands? We also ask about what makes a tremor you know, worse or better. So sometimes people say that caffeine or being nervous or anxious can make the tremor much worse. And a lot of times alcohol actually makes the tremor better. Um, we ask about family history, whether there are any known family members who had a history of tremor, even if they didn't have any diagnosis, formal diagnosis of ET. And then the other things we ask about are uh, symptoms of other movement disorders that can be mimickers of eccentric tremor. So for instance, in patients with Parkinson's disease, you know, we ask about their gait, their walking, um, whether they have rigidity, stiffness, or slowness of movement. In patients with dystonic tremor, uh, so dystonia, that's when you have uh, co-activation of agonist and antagonist muscles. We ask whether they have, you know, muscle pain or muscle cramping. All these history can make us um, separate, you know, uh, essential tremor from other types of uh, movement disorders with tremor component. And just from the history alone, we can, you know, uh, have to distinguish uh, Parkinson's tremor, for instance, from essential tremor. So for instance, Parkinson's tremor typically are present at rest. They have a slower frequency. It's often called a roll-pilling, a roll-pill tremor. So kind of the hand, um, it slowly rolls. Again, the average age of onset for Parkinson's disease tend to be a little bit older than those with essential tremor. Um, there's not a really strong familial component to Parkinson's disease. Usually alcohol doesn't fix the tremor in Parkinson's disease. Again, these are not absolute rules and they're not super specific. But, you know, once these, these history can kind of guide you down one path or another. And after obtaining a detailed um, history, then performing a detailed neurological exam and movement disorder exam is critical to distinguish different types of tremors. So again, we observe to look at the frequency of the tremor. Is it low, below four hertz? Is it medium between four to eight hertz? Or is it high frequency, which is greater than eight hertz? And which limbs are um, affected? And then we do the activation test. So what I usually have patients do is, you know, hold up their arm in front of them, extending their arm can usually make the tremor worse, have them hold their arm to their chin. Um, and then I have them do, you know, the nose, finger, nose test to test for intentional component of the tremor. And I actually also have patients do a variety of these activities during the exam. So they can draw the spiral. So starting in the middle and progressively drawing a larger spiral in which you can see, you know, um, these little swirls um, and unsteadiness when they're drawing or writing their name. Uh, we have patients try to pour water out, try to drink out of a cup. All the activities of daily living, which can bring up the tremor. And I know this is a very busy table, um, but this is just an idea, gives you an idea that there are these differences among each one of the tasks that I talked about, you know, um, in terms of, uh, that can distinguish essential tremor from Parkinson's tremor from dystonic tremor. And so we use all of these clues kind of, that can guide us down um, one diagnosis versus the other. And we do ask also, you know, order brain MRI uh, imaging. And this is mostly to help us rule out secondary causes of tremor. 
So things I didn't talk about is um, sometimes stroke itself can cause tremor or brain tumors even can cause tremor. And there are other you know, degenerative diseases like demyelinating diseases that can also contribute to tremor. So we just want to make sure that grossly there's no structural causes for tremor. And there are some functional studies that we can order as well to further distinguish Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonism from essential tremor. So next, I would like to talk about, you know, the pathophysiology of the disease. So given, you know, the strong familial component of the disease and that, you know, 30 to 70 percent of the patients may have family members who are afflicted by tremor, we would think, you know, there is a genetic cause and that we hopefully have isolated these genes. So despite the fact that there is a strong familial component and trait in ET, um, actually, there hasn't been a single gene that can, can explain all the uh, cases of the central tremor. Um, it is seems to be inherited as an autos, autosomal dominant trait. So which means that children of uh, infected, um, affected individual has 50% chance of developing the disorder, which also means that just one copy of an altered gene in the cell is sufficient to cause this disorder. And, you know, given multiple um, studies, it is really likely the cause that there are several genetic mutations that can lead to the same disorder. But we just don't know what they are yet. And currently, there's no cure for this disease. Now, I'm going to bring back some of the concepts that Maggie talked about in terms of the pathophysiology and the brain circuits that are involved. So the pathophysiology of eccentric tremor is actually not known, despite how common it is. Um, though it is most likely associated with degeneration of neurons in the cerebellum, uh, especially from the dentate nucleus, as uh, Maggie mentioned. So it's this deep cluster of neurons that's located within the cerebellum. And it's likely that the inhibitory neurons from this circuit is degenerated. And uh, we don't know why, but degeneration of these neurons in the dentate nucleus can cause these pathological rhythmic oscillations throughout the entire brain network. So basically, the circuits from the dentate, which goes through the red nucleus to the thalamus to the cortex and back, and also the other circuit that goes down to the brainstem, they are affected. So basically, the cortical, ponto, cerebellar, thalamocortical loop um, are all the structures are abnormally synchronized and oscillating at this tremor frequency to generate tremor. And again, because this is a loop that facilitates and regulates scaling of our movement and fine control of our movement, so that's why disorder, uh, this disorder affecting you know, the circuit can generate the symptoms that we see. And this becomes, um, this circuit uh, and location of this pathway becomes important when I'm going to be talking about treatments. So keep that in mind. So now let's talk about treatment. So after somebody has been diagnosed with essential tremor, what are the options? How can we make these debilitating tremors stop? So the first line is actually a trial of medication. Um, so there are many, many types of medication that I will go into in detail a little bit later. But unfortunately, about 30 to 50% of patients may not respond to medication, and medication can lose um, efficacy over time. And the next step up after medication failure is uh, Botox injection. 
So Botox injection can be, some, be somewhat effective um, for um, only certain tremor types, for instance, head tremor and maybe voice tremor. Um, but there are associated side effects associated, uh, with Botox injection, and the effects are usually not long-lasting. And then after, you know, patients fail medication, it's actually a good time to consider additional uh, surgical interventions, one of which is um, deep brain stimulation. So DBS is a battery-powered device that uses electricity to modulate the abnormal electrical circuits and oscillations and rhythms that are generated by neurodegeneration. Um, it is super effective, and it has led to some wonderful results. And besides DBS, the other type of surgical intervention that we offer for patients with eccentric tremor are known as ablative therapies or thalamotomy. So these are non-reversible surgeries that use targeted application of heat to ablate or lesion tissue uh, in the thalamus area, which are can be drive apart, play a part in driving the ET tremor symptom. So let's talk about medication. Um, so in terms of medical therapy, uh, the first line me medication include propanolol, which is a beta blocker. It's super effective, has been shown to be effective in randomized control trials. Um, but it does have some side effects, you know, besides being able to control someone's tremor, it can cause low blood pressure and can decrease heart rate. So patients may feel dizzy um, at high doses and they just, some people can even pass out with high doses of propanolol. Um, the other first line medication is a drug called primidone. It is an anticonvulsant. Um, which, you know, again, it may be uh, helpful in reducing tremor, but it may cause a lot of cognitive issues in patients. In the second line medication, there are many different types. Um, there's topiramide, gabapentin, clonazepam. So it's a mixture of anticonvulsants and pain medication. And, um, you know, they all have carry their uh, side effect profiles. So, you know, medication is great, and, um, but it's not effective in all patients. Some patients may respond for a while, they may lose their efficacy, or some people may never respond or don't have any response to medication to begin with. So now Botox injection, again, it's um, a kind of a muscle relaxer in, in a sense. It paralyzes, you know, the muscle activity. So for hand tremor, sometimes people inject um, uh, Botox into the flexor, so kind of like the forearm muscles to reduce tremor. It, they can inject into the neck muscles to reduce head tremor. They can actually directly inject into the vocal folds to um, the vocal cord to reduce vocal tremor. But the effect is transient and the length of each application kind of shortens over time. And also, you know, the way it works is by causing muscle weakness. So that can it's not a great trade-off to stop tremor. And the other you know, non-surgical option that has been recently approved by the FDA is this calatriol device. So it is a peripheral nerve stimulator that um, patients wear around their wrist. And basically, it sends electrical impulses, um, basically zaps your median nerve and your radial nerve. And what's thought to happen is that because your nerves and your brain circuit is receiving this other signal, then it can disrupt the pathological signals that's triggering the tremor. And it's been shown to be about 50% effective. 
Um, but some of the downside is that, you know, each session only lasts 40 minutes. So it's really on, on demand because the longer you wear this device, the less well it works. Because one of the key properties of the cerebellum is to adapt. There's incredible plasticity involved. So they can, the, your brain kind of learns about the signal and then stop, stops responding to it or, you know, choose to ignore it. So it doesn't provide a lasting relief for the tremor. So now I will talk about a little bit more about, you know, the more invasive uh, procedures that's been really effective to treat trauma. So first is deep brain stimulation or DBS surgery. So it involves implantation of a very thin wire electrode in the brain. And the target is actually the thalamus usually. And this uh, brain electrode is connected to a battery that's implanted in the chest by a lead extension wire. So just a connection wire. Um, to treat you know, both sides of the tremor, you would require two brain electrodes. And what DBS does, it's that it uses um, precise electrical stimulation to normalize or suppress abnormal rhythms generated by the brain. Um, it is very adjustable. So it's shown by this, you know, graph here, animation here. It is also reversible. So, you know, each electrode, a DBS electrode has these little contacts, little metal parts in which we can pass a current through. So, you know, as a clinician, we can actually control now the direction of the stimulation. Uh, we can control the amount of stimulation and also the location of the stimulation. So uh, giving us ability to fine tune uh, to the patient's needs. So it's very personalized as well. And uh, it is, um, you know, a therapy that requires a lot of um, uh, patient participation as well. So, you know, after implanting the electrode and the hardware, which is, you know, my job to do it safely and accurately, then usually the patient's neurologist will use, you know, an external tablet to adjust and fine tune the device for its full efficacy. And the patient themselves actually are given a remote as well. So it's kind of cool because, you know, I tell patients, you're given a remote into your own brain and just like your TV remote, uh, we give you a, a range, a safe range to play with, but you can turn your volume up and down. You can turn your stimulation up and down. You can even change your channel. We can give you different programs. You know, some may be better if you're eating. Some programs may be better while you're walking. And uh, you can shut it off completely at night. So to prevent, you know, the plasticity or how your brain would get used to stimulation. So it doesn't lose efficacy long term. And then now to go back to the neuroanatomy. So which target do we, uh, do I put the electrode in? So as I mentioned, you know, uh, this dentato rubral, so red nucleus, uh, thalamic uh, tract, um, the, the one of the most effective target for uh, DBS to treat eccentral tremor is located in the thalamus. So it's an area called the VIM or the ventral intermediate nucleus of the thalamus. So it's a small area that receives input from the dentate nucleus of the cerebellum. And then it goes to the motor cortex for output. And this target is really, really effective in suppressing tremor. So after I evaluate a patient and uh, he or she wants to have DBS surgery, for treatment of the tremor, 
this is how I do the surgery. So before um, they go into the OR, I get a very detailed image of their brain. So detailed brain MRI, and I actually do some uh, fancy advanced uh, imaging techniques to finally localize the, leash, uh, the, the area where I want to implant. So I plan my trajectory, you know, where I'm going to make my entry. Um, and then on the day of surgery, the patient wears a fancy hat. So this is known as a stereotactic uh, frame. So this frame gives me the coordinates of where and how deep to go to reach the target as accurately as safely as possible. And um, so most of the surgery patient is sedated, kind of in a dentist's office. You have no idea what's going on, but you're still breathing on your own. And then after I drill the hole, once I lower the electrode, we actually wake the patient up to do testing. So here are, um, is a video of one of my patients, my, one of my first patients with essential tremor. Um, so as you can see here, she has the classic symptoms where she has this postural tremor, tremor you know, brought on by extending her arm. Uh, in the operating room, I have them try to pretend to drink out of a bottle. You can see her tremor getting worse. And this is with the DBS off. And in the same patient, just a few minutes later, we turn the DBS on. You can see in the video on the right, her tremor pretty much stopped altogether. So she's able to do all these things tremor-free. And it's one of the best moments. Um, I love seeing patients' reaction. You know, when, when they're able to hold a pen steady, they're able to write or draw uh, in the OR, and you can see this drastic difference. And the other thing that I want to mention is that in the video here on the left, you can see that she also has some significant jaw tremor. Uh, and here, actually, with a DBS, I was able to stop the jaw tremor as well. Again, our goal is to treat the hand tremor because that's the most disabling symptom. But we can actually have some benefits on the head, jaw, and voice tremor as well. And this is the same patient we're doing, having her draw the spiral. And you can see that she can barely keep the pen on the paper when she tried to draw it before DBS was turned on. And then I know it's not perfect, but, you know, this is just a rough uh, programming that I do or testing I do in OR. And in the patient once recovered from surgery, will go to his or her neurologist to get fine tuning of um, the device. And how effective is, is uh, DBS? Um, there's been multiple randomized control trials. It has class A evidence, that it, class one evidence, and that is super effective. In fact, it's probably the gold standard in terms of efficacy for treatment of essential tremor. It's um, significant at reducing um, the, the absolute tremor score. I would say in the short term efficacy, um, it's about 60 to 80% effective. So at reducing tremor, but what's not even shown, you know, by the, uh, the number is actually the drastic improvement in um, activity of daily living score shown by this bottom graph here, as well as improvements in quality, quality of life. And there is some suggestion that, you know, over long term, it may lose some efficacy. But there's been several, there have been several long-term studies that show that patients remain at least 60% effective long-term after DBS surgery. So what are the adverse effects? What can go wrong, right? Medication can cause side effects. What about surgery? So the biggest um, worry about surgery is actually hardware infection. Just because I'm putting um, metal in somebody's body, the, that can become infected. 
And if it does, then that means, you know, usually all the hardware has to come out and people need to be patients and be treated with antibiotics. Also, by inserting a probe into someone's brain, that can increase the risk of bleeding or stroke. Um, that happens, you know, less than 1% of the time, but it can be devastating. And, um, you know, because stimulation, you know, no matter how well I place the lead, if we turn up stimulation too high, we're going to affect other parts of the brain circuit. So too much stimulation, especially bilateral stimulation of the thalamus can cause gait and balance issues. Um, just because we're stimulating some of the tracks, and as Maggie mentioned before, the cerebellum controls our balance um, and also, you know, uh, controls our sensation. So we can cause abnormal tingling sensation. And if the stimulation turned up really high, uh, then we can stimulate part of the tract that controls our speech and cause um, contractions or slurred speech. So all of this points to the importance of placing the lead well uh, in a good location. So how do we determine location? As I mentioned before, you know, the VIN identifying is critical. Um, it is a very small structure, about, you know, four by six millimeters um, in terms of maybe uh, four millimeters tall. So it's a very small, small area. And so we don't have a lot of room for error. And since I'm just drilling a hole on top of the skull and there's, you know, about two to three inches before reaching the target, you know, it's really important to reach it accurately. And as I mentioned before, you know, a lot of patients with these central tremor also have horrible head tremor as shown here. So um, as you can see, this image is very blurry and it's really hard to localize, you know, where the VIM is. And on traditional images, we actually can't visualize where it is. So what it's, uh, how we determine the location is actually based on experience. So there's a set of consensus coordinates, you know, few millimeters in front of this line, um, 10 millimeters from this wall, the third ventricle. Um, that's usually roughly where we think the BIN is. So that's why we rely on intraoperative awake testing to make sure we're in a good spot and not causing side effects before we, you know, fully implant the device. So how can we improve visualization of the BIN? So um, there is a sequence of MRI called proton density, uh, which captures concentration of water protons in each voxel. And tissue with higher density have greater um, uh, results in a brighter signal. So using this image, we actually can visualize the nucleus of the VIN. So again, going back here, you can see these two oval shapes that are slightly darker. That's actually where the VIM is. This is another patient with the proton density scan. And again, you can see this white border surrounding this dark spot. So that can actually allow me to see where the VIM is more accurately. So this is comparing a traditional MR image called the T2 image with the proton density image in the same patient. And here, you know, everything looks great. But here you can see actually the finer granularity of where the VIM is. And, you know, the VIM, it looks like a larger structure, right? So which part, subregion within the VIM is most effective? So that's where um, the, the track that um, Maggie explained earlier comes into play. So from the dentate nucleus of the cerebellum through the uh, red nucleus of um, the brainstem, 
to, to the midbrain and to the thalamus forms this dentatorubral thalamic tract, also known as the DRT. It's a, a part of the pathway that, again, generates a tremor. And now using advances in uh, imaging and software, uh, my planning software, I actually obtain a, a tractography Im image for all my patients when I'm planning. And then I put in all the areas that this fiber track connects to and the computer software algorithm here. Um, and this is kind of doing it in real life. It's just a few clicks of the button can actually track, see on the, where my arrow is on the left bottom left panel, um, can track out this pathway that Maggie has shown before. So again, the yellow here is a dentate nucleus. The red is a red nucleus. The pink structure here is the thalamus, uh, the VIM nucleus of the thalamus based on the proton density scan. And the green here is a motor cortex. So I can identify the specific fiber within the VIM that, that is the target I'm trying to uh, aim my DBS electrode at. So with all of these tools and improved visualization giving me a way to essentially see into a patient's brain uh, during surgery, then I can place my lead as accurately as I can. And these are just you know, some of the images that, that's produced. Again, what I'm trying to pr uh, produce is uh, place an electrode through the VIM where the VIM basically is close to the fiber bundle that passes through this, uh, as I can. And um, another advantage of this system and this planning software is, as I mentioned before, you know, if I place a so uh, lead well, uh, it's only part of the equation. We still need the neurologist to program. And now with all these images, I would send, you know, I would actually be able to localize where the lead is within these structures and send this picture to my neurologist. So based on this, they know that in this electrode contact channel two to four is where the sweet spot of stimulation is. So they will know when they're programming someone to turn on stimulation and direct current in those contacts. And this, you know, instead of the trial and error method before where you, we try each one of these contacts, turn it up high until we see a side effect to find one that's really effective. Using these image guided um, programming uh, sessions, we can get to the sweet spot and get patients greater therapy sooner and faster. All right, so I talked a lot about DBS. As you can tell, you know, I'm very passionate about it because I've seen so many patients who suffered for decades uh, with this debilitating disease and suddenly now they can draw, paint again, you know, make jewelry again, you know, restoring life to what it was like before they had tremor and super satisfying. Um, and I would now like to talk about another type of surgery that we will be very soon offering at UCSF, which is focused ultrasound thalamotomy. So it's a type of ablative procedure that I mentioned before. In 2016, the FDA approved the use of focused ultrasound to treat central tremor um, and also to treat tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease. How it works is that um, basically uh, focused ultrasound uses convergence of thousands of these sound waves to precisely deliver energy through the skin, through the skull, um, that can actually increase the temperature, just like a magnetic 
glass, right? When you focus all the light beams, each one of the light beams may be um, harmless, but when you focus them together, you can actually cause thermal lesion to a small area of the brain. And the area is about size of a pea. And again, the target is a VIN, nucleus of thalamus. And where, you know, I uh, use to treat, uh, uh, to implant my electrodes for DBS surgery. So here's an example of how the focus ultrasound works. So patients go in and out of the MRI scanner. The surgery is actually all done inside a magnet uh, scanner. And they wear this helmet-shaped device that can, has ability to pass and um, deliver ultrasound waves uh, through the skull. And again, when where the uh, all these uh, sound waves converge is where the temperature and the tissue begin to rise. And you can see here. And what we literally do is make a hole in the brain, but in a very, very precise way. And we can um, uh, lesion the tissue. So um, what are the advantages of um, thalamotomy and especially of this procedure? First of all, it's incisionless. There's no craniotomy or hole um, involved. And I'm not implanting hardware. So um, as you can imagine, as I mentioned before, one of the biggest risks of DBS surgery is um, hardware infection. So there's essentially no risk of infection. And the ultrasound waves, we can really target it precisely and accurately to ablate the tissue. And we can do this in the MRI suite, and we can actually monitor the temperature of the lesion accurately in real time. And we can monitor the procedure and test, you know, patient's response right then and there. So patient is actually awake during the whole procedure, and we do all these testing, just like we do for DBS surgery. So we get the real-time feedback of both tremor improvement and potential side effects during treatment. And we can achieve submillimeter um, precision uh, using this technique. And what are the results? Of course, this is a best case scenario, but um, this is a patient, you know, again, with significant uh, tremor, mostly in his right hand. And after focus ultrasound thalamotomy, you can see, you know, dramatic improvement in his right hand tremor. Um, but this has been actually studied in some landmark papers. So in a paper published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, 76 patients were randomized to either receive a, a fake treatment, a sham treatment, or the thalamotomy. Um, they all showed significant improvement up to one year and significant improvements in terms of quality of life measurements. And uh, the durability of the effect is kind of similar to that of DBS. So even after four years of um, focused ultrasound, there's about 56% improvement in hand tremor, 70% uh, in uh, postural tremor, 63% improvement in action tremor, and 63% improvement in overall disability compared with um, baseline. And these were you know, significant and sustained. So it's pretty comparable to um, the effects of deep brain simulation surgery. And of course, there are also side effects associated with the procedure. So immediately after treatment, the most common adverse effect involves imbalance and gait disturbances can happen in, you know, a fourth of the individual. We can cause, again, abnormal sensations. Um, patients, almost half of them report headache or pain during the procedure. But luckily, most of these resolve within 30 days. 
Um, at three years, you know, only about 4% of the patients still had imbalance, 4% had unsteadiness, 2% had actual gait problems, walking problems, and 2% had muscle weakness. Um, but, you know, using a lot of the technology that I mentioned before, these tractography-based and imaging-based lesioning, we are hoping to actually decrease some of the side effects. Again, the side effects are seen because we're causing swelling um, to the brain around the surrounding structures. So if we can be more precise and more targeted, uh, we are hoping to improve these um, uh, problems. And now here's kind of a, um, a treatment workflow. So during the screening process, so everybody is, uh, gets a CT scan that measures the thickness and the density of their skull. And then um, actually for the procedure, the patient's hair has to be shaved to ensure that there's nothing that can interfere with the treatment. And a, a frame, again, is applied to the head. And um, there's also a membrane that circulates water um, just to prevent heating to occur during the treatment. And then again, um, as the treatment happens, um, we are, so patient goes in and out of the scanner and the clinicians test um, and ensure that, you know, no side effects are felt. Um, and then once the procedure is over, the nice thing about focus ultrasound is that patients go home the same day. So they don't need the repeated programming visits. So it's a really one, one and done procedure. Oh, yeah. So here is a video where the patient goes in and out. And what happens usually is we apply a test dose, a low dose of stimulation um, to see whether there's any tremor improvement, again, to ensure there's no side effects. And if it looks good, then we deliver the full dose that actually causes a permanent lesion. And the patient can, you know, stop sonication or stop treatment at any time. And this, and we can monitor with this the imaging exactly and precisely the temperature of the brain tissue in real time. And, and we have them do all the tests that I mentioned before, drawing spirals. And the procedure overall lasts about two hours, two and a half hours. And once the patient is done, then they go home the same day. So advantages of focused ultrasound, immediate and durable improvement. There's significant quality, uh, improvement in quality of life. It's an outpatient procedure, little to no risk of infection. There's no implants, probes, or ionizing radiation. Um, there's no anesthesia required. So, you know, when patients have tremor and they want to get evaluated, um, basically when I always get asked the question, when should I consider surgery? You know, it's not like a brain tumor, it's life or death, but it is very debilitating. So when I tell patients, if you have tried and failed two first-line medication and that the tremor is bothersome to you, then it's time to think about additional therapy like DBS surgery or a focus ultrasound. Um, and we just want to make sure, you know, you don't have any brain lesions. But for focus ultrasound, another criteria is that you can tolerate the procedure by lying still in the MRI and that your skull density has to be of a certain value. Otherwise, we just wouldn't be able to reach a temperature high enough to cause a lesion. 
So with that, I would like to conclude today's session. So um, essential tremor can be a very debilitating disease. Uh, both the motor and the non-motor components can severely affect a person's quality of life. Diagnosis is through history and clinical examination alone. There are multiple lines of effective treatment, from medication to Botox injection, and some people like to try the wearable device, to um, surgery. And when medications fail, it's, um, brain surgery can be a very uh, safe and effective, highly effective therapy to treat essential tremor. And with that, I would like to open it up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Wang. Um, that was incredible. And it's so amazing to see those awake surgeries and the, the immediate changes that you see. Um, and this is just, um, it's just so amazing, the advances in imaging and targeting and I guess, you know, understanding the anatomy is so important. So that's very cool. And I had no idea that essential tremor is so common uh, in the U.S. I, I feel like um, not that, not as much attention is paid to it as much as Parkinson's disease. So. Right. And it's actually 10 times more common than Parkinson's disease. Yeah. We've gotten a couple of good questions. So. You mentioned that you really are targeting the hand tremors. Um, so if someone has, say, a mild or you know, no hand tremor, but they have a really debilitating facial tremor or grimace tremor that might be affecting how they eat, are there any surgical options for these patients? Yeah, that is a wonderful question. And um, in fact, we're trying to investigate that right now at UCSF. So, um, you know, anecdotally, and it's been published, but still in small case series that we see, you know, patients with significant voice tremor and hand tremor, um, their voice tremor may get better actually after even if we target the hand area, because, you know, we're targeting kind of hand and face area is pretty close together in terms of the um, anatomy in the homunculus in the thalamus. So we may indirectly see some benefits. Um, but now we're actually, UCSF is part of um, one part of three centers, so MGH and U University of Utah, to study this very question, whether we can actually definitively improve vocal tremor with DBS surgery. Um, so stay tuned, I guess. Uh, we're still not targeting vocal tremor exclusively just because, you know, it's a little bit too experimental. But what we're doing now is for those with vocal tremors to characterize, characterize their tremor more systematically. So before their DBS surgery, they would actually get um, evaluated by a speech pathologist, by ENT doctor with a direct laryngoscopy. And we can really characterize amounts, amplitude. So like do a rating scale essentially of their vocal tremor before and after DBX. So once we completed that, then if we actually have confidence that DBS, you know, dramatically or, you know, even 30 or 40% just shows improvement in their vocal tremor, then that might be an effective uh, therapy. And we'll start offering that as a, you know, treatment. And um, how does, what goes into your determination? Do you usually do both-sided or bilateral surgeries or 
to usually do one-sided? Yeah, it depends on a few factors. Um, you know, one is patient's age. So even though their brain is normal-ish, um, there can be a lot of atrophy. So in the case, you know, again, most of these patients are elderly. So um, if they're elderly, have atrophy, I actually stage the surgery. So treat their more dominant side first, or maybe their dominant hand um, first, let them recover and then treat the other side. It's just because, you know, if I um, implant both sides at once, if one side causes a little bit of brain swelling, your brain can adapt pretty well. But if both sides of your thalamus uh, start swelling, then it can be pretty debilitating in terms of your ability to walk. Um, it may even cause weakness. So just safer to stage it. But, you know, if a patient um, have very symmetric symptoms, um, and their brain doesn't show a lot of atrophy, then I will implant both sides at once. And um, I guess one of our participants is specifically interested in grimace tremors. I'm not sure if there's been much research on grimacing tremors or if those might be more like dystonic tremors. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I'm not too familiar with grimacing tremor. Um, I guess one thing I would say is just make sure that's um, different from like hemifacial spasm where patients can have these like um, spasms and grimaces. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Botox is very effective for those. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, or microvascular decompression if there's uh, your facial nerve is being um, compress. Yeah, I'm not too familiar, you know, I guess we have to just make sure the grimaces are not caused by like neuroleptic exposure, because I think medication can cause more like dyskinesia. um, And, um, you know, abnormal, like orofacial movements. Um, But once that's all ruled out, I haven't heard of, you know, DBS to treat that. So I wouldn't be able to say whether it's effective or not. Yeah. And I have to say, as a neurologist, we see a lot of these tremors and, and working with the neurosurgeons is very rewarding um, often. And, um, but it's, it's cool to understand that there's a wide range of therapies. And the focus ultrasound sounds like an exciting addition to the armamentarium for treatment. So what do you see? It seems like it works similarly to DBS. So what, why would anyone get DBS and why yeah, would anyone great, just get ultrasound? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, right now it's only approved for unilateral tremor control. Because bilateral thalamotomy, at least traditionally, can really worsen somebody's balance issues and gait. So it's really only effective for, or I mean, it's safe for one side. Now, I know the, um, there is a clinical trial to test whether delay thalamotomy, again, treating one side and the other side six months or a year later, whether that's a little bit safer. Um, so I don't know the result of that yet. But that's why we can't treat both sides of the tremor. 
And then the other thing that you know um, people think it doesn't involve hardware, doesn't have incision. True, but you know I'm making an irreversible hole <laughs> in your brain. So to me, you know, it's a different level or different different way to think about invasion, right? Um, for me personally, I would want something that's adjustable uh, so that you have room in case, you know, my tremor gets worse 10 years, 15 years down the line, you know, that DBS, you can turn it up or, you know, try different stimulation configurations to kind of accommodate for that. And remember, it's still relatively new, you know, uh, it's only been around for now six years, um, a little bit longer, you know, including those who are in the initial clinical trial. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, um, we don't know, you know, long-term, you know, uh, 10 years, 15 years, how the thalamotomy is going to work. With these surgical procedures, do you see any improvement in the non-tremor manifestations of essential tremor at all? Yeah, in terms of cognition, no, um, just because, you know, I think there's diffuse atrophy um, throughout the cortical circuit. Um, in terms of mood, it doesn't make it worse. Um, and I guess in terms of some of the, if the depression and anxiety kind of comes from having the tremor, those certain uh, mood aspects can improve. But I think it's just more secondary because people are happy that their tremor is gone. Uh, have you ever had a headache as a complication of these surgeries? And if it's kind of prolonged, are there ways to address it or things to look out for? Um, that's a really great question. So in people, it's just across the board in terms of DBS surgery, it's really well tolerated. People don't typically complain of too much headache or pain. Um, usually it's transient. Um, and I just remember in one of my patients, not an essential tremor patient, but, you know, she had um, actually hypoxic injury and had uh, myoclonus as a result of hypoxia. So I did some uh, DBS surgery. She had just intractable pain. And I wonder if it's more central pain because maybe her thalamus pain pathway is disrupted. But um, that was kind of a rare occasion. Um, most people don't complain of too much headaches after the surgery. I know there's a lot of um, kind of excitement with this new technology with focused ultrasound. Do you see any other neurologic conditions that it uh, might be beneficial for or used for? Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think now we're using DBS to treat or neuromodulation to treat a variety of uh, neuropsychiatric disorders. You know, there are clinical trials for depression, for pain um, here at UCSF, uh, for OCD, and some other centers are doing it for addiction, um, uh, obesity even. And then um, for in terms of focus ultrasound, um, yeah, so there's, uh, you know, besides actually heating up the brain, so low power, low frequency focused ultrasound can disrupt blood brain barrier. So there's a lot of interest of using that to for oncology. So for people with, you know, brain tumor and operable brain tumor, it may enhance the efficacy of some chemo um, agents and chemotherapy agents. I guess you mentioned that some of the treatments for essential tumor also treat um, Parkinson's disease, does that also include 
say like Parkinson's disease related to exposure to chemicals? Um, yeah, so um, the, yeah, the Parkinson's um, tremor pathway also may involve the cerebellum. So that's why for Parkinson's patients with a tremor dominance, so they don't have a lot of the other symptoms like bradykinesia, rigidity, instability, then um, the VIM DBS can be a effective treatment just for the tremor component, but it just doesn't help with the other components. And the reason sometimes we use either focus ultrasound or DBS of the thalamus to treat Parkinson's tremor is that um, it has less effect on the other non-motor circuits. So um, in terms of cognitive circuit, it's just a gentler, more pure motor target. Whereas if we stimulate the globus pallidus or the subthalamic nucleus, we're affecting multiple other loops, including their cognition, their um, mood regulation. Thank you so much again for um, speaking. And I wanted to, and the other speakers aren't here, but thank everyone who has spoken and also Don Bowman and her team for uh, setting up this mini med school course. And I hope everyone has enjoyed the course as much as um, I enjoyed putting it together. Thank you for joining us too. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.